Hello and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. With the topic of the development dilemma, across the conversations, we share a lot of critique of the international development and aid sector, and justifiably so. But at the same time, it is important to recognize the positive contributions uh, that are made and particularly the potential there is in this space. And so with that in mind, in this episode, I speak with Arby Baguos, who, as the founder of the initiative Aid Reimagined, as a very vocal critic uh, of the aid industry on social media, in many different public forums, and as a leading voice in the decolonization movement, he brings a deep critique But at the same time, he walks the line between critiquing the ills of international actors, but also pushing for constructive change with them. And so picking up on the last episode with Shaquille, where we spoke a lot around the structures within workplaces and trying to separate those from the individuals at play, we similarly look at the aid structures and trying to separate how an individual as well can think about working with or against the system. And throughout this, what I really appreciated was Arby brought a much needed nuance to my questions and thoughts, and it was a really enjoyable conversation. So I hope you take something from this. And lastly, I'm delighted to announce that I'll be running a panel discussion event in Nairobi in mid-September, featuring many speakers from earlier episodes, followed by open discussion with everyone to start the conversations. Details will be shared on social media closer to the time, so make sure to follow and please come and bring friends along. And with that, enjoy the podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Arby, for joining me on The Development Dilemma. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start with one question, and that is, what do you think is underappreciated in the international development space? And if people take away one thing from today's episode, what would that message be? That's a really good question. So I think if there's one underappreciated point in the international development and humanitarian sector, it's that people are altruistic. And it sounds so obvious, but I think in especially among sort of like reformers. There are a lot of people, for example, who say, oh, we should not have the international development sector anymore. We should just burn down everything. And there are not a lot who say this, but there are certainly some who say, oh, we should just not have aid. Um, And when I say we are altruistic by nature, and this is something that I believe in, I think that people will always try to help whenever they see suffering or whenever they see need. Whether that's at the local level, whether you see your neighbors in a community who need something, or whether that's at an international scale. And so I think the endeavor is for all of us to find the most optimal way in channeling our altruism into something that will actually have an effective and a just impact, especially on the people who are at the receiving end of our efforts. And for me, this is how I orient a lot of my thinking and a lot of my work in an understanding that people will always try to help. And we cannot create systems where it doesn't follow the kind of like the curve of our human nature. And so for me, it's about designing systems that embraces that altruistic nature, but tries to channel that altruistic nature into effectiveness and justice. I really like that. And I think it helps bring a real positive lens and push to a discussion which, at the moment, for good reasons, can be quite negative. 
but not to forget that this is about a project of people helping contributing in a positive nature with genuinely good intent, I think in many cases. And so I think that's a really helpful backdrop to, to frame this discussion. Sure. And I just wanted to say that some people might think, oh, that sounds so naive. And I'm not saying that there are no one who has malintentions or whose intentions result into negative effects. There are a lot of groups like that throughout society. But for me, it's important to have a, a positive sort of like framing of the human story. And I recognize that this is just me. This is just my own predisposition of how I view human history. From there, we can go on to your background and the journey, your human story and your human journey that's brought you to where you are today. And as reflecting on that, any key things that you, that you highlight when it comes to the relation to the kind of aid system? Yeah, I grew up in the Philippines. And when I was younger, when you'd ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would always answer something that is orientated towards some sort of positive impact or public service. So from when I was very small, I wanted to be a priest. And then it evolved into wanting to become a teacher. And then eventually I kind of like settled into wanting to become a lawyer. Growing up in the Philippines, I've experienced or my family has experienced disasters ourselves. When I was younger, our house was flooded and we had to be evacuated by rescue boats. And this occurred more than once. And growing up seeing this, it just really dawned on me the impact of disasters, of crisis in people's lives. And we're fortunate enough that we were able to bounce back quickly. But I recognize that other people, other families don't have that same opportunity or privilege. Another factor that has influenced my decision is that my mom was also a humanitarian worker. So she actually started out as a nurse. And then eventually she found her way into working as a health program manager in refugee camps in many places around the world. And that certainly has had an influence on me as well. And when it comes to your position today with respect to the aid world, so you are going to be starting a PhD and it's something that's an avid subject of research for you. What is the kind of the main focus of your work? How I kind of set up the narrative in my own head, at least, is that uh, I'm interested in sort of like longer term solutions, particularly to humanitarian problems, because I see humanitarian problems as a really compelling issue. I think in 2021, it's just an outrage that people die because of flooding or because of typhoons or because of earthquakes. And there's a, a huge um, difference on that in, in different countries, in different societies. And I think that that is just um, unacceptable and that society should be doing something about it. I also think the same for refugees, for example. I think that their predicament that a lot of governments are unwilling to provide uh, the necessary support that they need is really unacceptable. But at the same time, I'm also interested in the meta stuff. Within the humanitarian sector, I'm interested in systems change. And in my um, PhD, I'm looking at sort of like governance systems um, and institutions. And my topic in particular is looking at how people in difficult situations like refugee settlements can 
create institutions that help them transform their own lives and that helps them transform markets and societies. And that's coming from a belief that, and this is something that I've always believed in, in my humanitarian work, that people and communities are able to, to govern themselves in, in the best way possible and that they, they have the knowledge to govern themselves. And what we need to be doing is providing an enabling environment for them to be able to find solutions to their own problems and to organize their community in, in a way that they believe can achieve positive effects. So yeah, those, that's kind of like the, the meta stuff that I'm, I'm interested in. Okay, great. And when it comes to the meta surrounding the system, and I think we hear a lot about, and I certainly use the word as, as well, of systems change, of you know, reforming the system, etc. First of all, for you, what is the system? A great question. In a very simple way, a system is comprised of different parts that interact with each other and that they have a purpose or they have a goal and that their outcome or effect is more than just the sum of its parts. So there's usually the so-called emergent outcome from the interaction of the system. So sometimes that outcome can be uh, the goal that they set for themselves and that they intended to do in the first place. Sometimes it's an unintentional outcome that is unforeseen. So I think that's a simple way to describe a system. That's a really helpful explanation. I really appreciate that. And so taking that and contextualizing it to the aid system, what does that mean? It means that humanitarian aid workers, especially those who find themselves in the formal humanitarian sector, they interact with other actors in the system, whether that's people and communities affected by crisis themselves, whether that's sort of informal humanitarian actors, the private sector, governments, and they're all trying to solve this issue. So let's say um, in a typhoon-affected community, they're all trying to, I don't know, provide relief to those who have been affected and then also build back better so that they can withstand the next typhoon. And so you've got this system that's all interacting with each other with a goal. But then sometimes the outcome can be positive where the project has succeeded in providing relief and building resilience of people and communities. Sometimes it can have unintended consequences. Sometimes humanitarian aid workers can undermine local governance structures or can have unintended effects on the social cohesion of the community. They can have negative impacts on the local bureaucracy. And in the same way, other actors can have an impact on the humanitarian aid sector itself. And so that's what I mean when I say it's more than just the sum of its parts. And beyond that, that's just framing it as one system. But we all know that the humanitarian sector is what I call a system within a system or a nested system. And the humanitarian aid sector interacts with donor governments, with multilateral institutions, with donor constituencies, Mm -hmm. with geopolitics. And this is going to be even more complicated in, say, a conflict context, I mean, where the causes of conflict may be influenced by wider geopolitical issues. And so 
yeah, this is how I mean when I say that the humanitarian aid sector is a is a kind of a system. Okay, and I appreciate it's a deeply complex and an immense thing. So capturing these things linguistically, if you want to be concise, is always limited in its in, in its coverage. But I hope that's clear. Yeah. So I'm curious when you look at that system and the humanitarian aid system. And you see the actors, the affected people or beneficiaries, uh, for lack of a better term. If there are key benefits and key flaws, how would you describe them? I think that's an interesting way of framing the question of what are the key benefits and the key flaws. I think the actors are just acting within the system, right? Whether or not their actions have a positive or a negative effect depends on their systemic context. What are the levers that motivate them or incentivize them to do an action? What is uh, the reward? What are the checks and balances within the system? So you've got issues within the humanitarian sector, for example, like being donor-led because, say, an international NGO is incentivized to listen to the donor more because they will get more funding than, say, listening to people and communities. So, for example, they impose a top-down design on people and communities because that's what the donor wants. On the other hand, you can have a situation where... uh, international organizations really do listen to to people and communities because, for example, they have a strong organizational culture of accountability. They have leaders within their organization that really push for accountability. And so I take a very Eleanor Ostrom take on things where there's no angels or devils among human beings. It's just our institutional context. And I do agree. We are shaped by the system. And so if there are issues, it's, it's systemic. But nonetheless, within that, we are a part of it. And we are part of it in ways that build it or that take it down or reform it, perhaps, as opposed to taking it down. So when it comes to motivating some of that reform as a system as it is today, for whom does it have that unintended consequence? I think that the system that we have today within humanitarian aid has grown or has emerged historically. And at the moment, the dominant model of humanitarian aid is Northern-led. Well, and I say humanitarian aid as we know it, uh, because obviously there is humanitarian assistance or what we can call humanitarian assistance already happening within neighbors help each other out, groups of people help each other out in that context. But when I say humanitarian aid as we know it, I mean the international humanitarian sector. And its history started, you know, can be understood to to start from missionaries in the past. It has links to the colonial enterprise, the colonial endeavor. And then it's, it's now grown into this big bureaucracy or big kind of like industry that definitely has faulty incentives to uh, a large extent. And so your question is like, 
who is experiencing the unintended um, consequences. I think all the actors are experiencing unintended consequences, negative and positive, because there are positive unintended consequences. But I think that a lot of our evolution has not always been oriented towards uh, people and communities. It can be oriented towards, say, compliance to, to donor requirements. It can be oriented towards technocratic approaches. What would be an example of that? Sure. I mean, like in the wider development in humanitarian aid discourse, a classic example that one would learn is the Millennium Villages Project that was designed by economists from the global north. And their premise is basically, if you just have a big investment of aid in a particular area and create this Millennium Village where there's service provision like healthcare and education, then that will alleviate poverty and that will um, lead to sustainable development. And now that it's been a decade, maybe even more than that, we know from evaluations that the Millennium Villages project has not really achieved its intended purpose. It has not um, alleviated to a desired extent poverty in these areas. And that's because development, I believe at least, is a process. It's not just a matter of in investment of inputs. It is a, a process and it has to do with power and it has to do with justice. And so um, a purely technocratic and material perspective on it, I think, I believe, and evaluations have shown, will not uh, lead to the outcome that you intend. And there are similar examples in humanitarian aid. There's now issues, for example, about the data of people who are receiving aid, especially from bigger organizations. There's been news recently about how UNHCR might have shared the data of refugees to the government. And so we can reasonably think that this issue evolved from the aid agency wanting to be more efficient in the way that they do things. So, oh, okay, then we'll have all these technology, we'll collect the data and we'll process it and, we'll, and this will make our operations better. But clearly they've missed a trick there. And that's what I mean when I say it's not really evolved um, centering people and communities all the time. There's a great book, I think, that touches upon this, uh, William Easterly. And so he wrote a great book called The Tyranny of Experts. And he, what he does in there is he really emphasizes and explores this technocratic approach and the issues of exactly that. And I think, as you touched upon, he delves into how the origins of humanitarian aid and, and broader the aid sector is very much from a colonial project, the transition of power and, and somewhat trying to maintain that power whilst shifting narratives around the white race and, and what they were doing. And so I think that shifting of the focus of who is it designed for and by, in particular, is at the moment trying to push it and bring it more along to the people who are affected to give them more of that power. And so that, if, that resonates as the one of the key consequences of the system. And, and the inverse of that is the benefits are those who get to control that power, control the funds. And the press prestige, the fame that comes with, you know, designing the Millennium Development Goals and the likes of Bob Geldof and Jeffrey Sachs, who, who were paraded around the world. How do you see the motivations behind what they were doing? 
without, of course, having spoken to them. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't doubt their motivations at all. I think that many of us, many of us in society, especially those who are working in development and humanitarian sector, are well-intentioned. If they were trying to do something bad, they wouldn't be in the development sector in the first place. They wouldn't have studied uh, development economics. They could have worked for a sector that is worse than us. And there are a lot that has genuine negative, a bigger negative impact on not just on people and communities, but on the planet. So I don't doubt people's motivations at all. That is not where I begin when I analyze people's actions. And I'm not discounting the, the, the reality that there are people who have bad intentions working in the sector. But I think it's reasonable to say that many of us, specifically in this sector where the whole spirit is to do some good in the world, many of us start out with positive intentions. And this connects to, to what I said earlier, where I believe that people are altruistic. But it's just that when you channel that altruism in a faulty system, then it produces unintended negative consequences. Something that I like to, to say and something that I've actually built kind of like a, a mental framework around this is that what we need is science, systems thinking, and social justice. You can't you, for me, the optimal outcome, positive outcome, is when you combine all of these three, when you have an understanding of all of these three. And I think what happens with overly technocratic projects and what happens with overly, quote-unquote, science-focused projects, the numbers are great on paper, the calculations are great. Impact metrics. Yeah, exactly. And what happens is that they ignore systems thinking. So they ignore the systemic context, not just of uh, that particular place where they're implementing the program, but also the wider kind of like system context of the development sector. And they also ignore social justice, where actually it's not just about the numbers on paper, but it's about the process. And it's about the stake of people in, and communities in, the, in your particular endeavor. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I'm not rejecting technocratic process, but it has to be combined with other perspectives as well. I really like that because I mean, have you read much of Amartya Sen? I'm yeah. sure you have. And his thinking on this really has shaped a lot of mine. And I, I, I really find that combination quite powerful. Uh, and, and so I'd love to explore that deeper. And so to make this very concrete and <laughs> to put you on the spot, to take an example of your choosing from the humanitarian sector, of an initiative, what would bringing together the technocratic understanding, the academic approaches, combined with a systems-based analysis, as well as a social justice and political voicing of people's opinions who are being affected, what would that look like, at least in the approach? Or have you seen any particularly good initiatives that have coupled these three things? Okay, in terms of what it would look like, it will look very differently in very different contexts. And again, this is kind of like the meta description of what I think could be a, a good project. And again, this is coming from my own perspective based on my own knowledge and my own 
quote-unquote positionality. This is how I put language to what I've learned thus far. And some other people, some, some, some other communities or groups may describe it in, in other ways. But for me, this is kind of like what I believe are the meta principles that we should follow. And how it looks like is that, yes, you apply technical knowledge, you apply the best of science. And when I say science, I mean a pluralistic understanding of science. So not just what we know as sort of like northern based, northern view of science, but also indigenous knowledge systems and incorporating that in, into our work. So yes, there's the science. Yes, there's the systems thinking where we know local systems and we know the local context and we're able to deliver our program in, in the right configuration with the right incentives, onboarding the right people, so local stakeholders that are key in making a, a program successful, local groups, etc. So we know the kind of like the system. And yes, social justice, where actually we center the perspectives, the values, and the voices of the people we are trying to help. Or if it's a community, then we really value those who may be marginalized in that community. And so it's not really a clear description because it can look like uh, very differently in different contexts because they're meta principles. In terms of concrete examples, well, that's the kind of like unicorn, right? Like what is this sort of like perfect program and how does that look like if I'm always asked this? And I think I'm setting the bar really high because that's what people and communities deserve. Like that's what citizens of this world deserve, a really high bar for projects and programs and activities that will affect their very lives and the future of their societies. Whether or not it will be met perfectly by someone or some organization, I don't know, but I think this is what we all deserve. But I have seen uh, a number of projects and organizations that really incorporate the spirit of this science, systems thinking, and social justice. Just to give one example is this organization called Local to Global. They, they use their own terminologies, right? And they use their own frameworks and perspectives. But I can see that elements of science, systems thinking, and social justice are really present in their work. They know the system. They so-called work with a grain in that particular context and really understand the context. They really center the voices of, of people and communities. So they have this approach called something like survivor-centered or survivor-led response, where they really prioritize the, the, the people and communities affected by crises. And yeah, it's run by really brilliant, um, technical-minded people as well. And they follow sort of like the technical guidance that's provided by the, the sector more widely. And so it's a really good example what what they do. I know that they have a project in the Philippines that tries to, to do this, but they also have projects elsewhere that this approach is applied to. And it's really fascinating to see. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll have, definitely have to look into it. And 
links will be shared so, so people can find that. Looking at the larger system of the humanitarian aid space, and then as you mentioned, good examples of what needs to be done, cropping up in the form of a lot more discussion around this topic. So we're seeing a lot of a push for more of this inclusion. I'm curious about is how does one balance setting the bar really high, expecting a lot from individuals who we agree are already well-intentioned on the large part. And how does one critique those who don't make it? Do we say, well, you should try harder, but that's good enough. Or we say, no, you shouldn't even try if you're not going to aim for this high of a bar. So for me, I have my own personal view of what is right, what is I believe is effective and what I believe is just. And that's kind of like my North Star in most of the things that I do. Or South Star. Yeah, or <laughs> South Star, that's true. And when I advocate for my own vision, and I really emphasize own because obviously like I can't claim that I speak on behalf of everyone. And I've learned my vision is uh, informed by many others before me who have tried to, who are trying to reform um, the humanitarian sector and who are trying to advocate for effectiveness and justice more broadly in society. But speaking just for myself, I have my own vision of what is right. And whenever I try to advocate my beliefs to other people, then I always try to adapt my messaging. And that's just public speaking or marketing 101, right? Like you adapt your audience. And so if I encounter someone who isn't on the same page as I am, of course, then I will try to speak to their values. I will try to to see how I can convince them. I will try to show why according to their logic or according to their values, my perspective is worth considering. And that is to say, I'm a pragmatist. Again, I start with a, with a baseline of, okay, people have good intentions, but they just might have um, different versions of what that looks like. And it's a matter of um, convincing them and it's a matter of changing norms. That's why with science, systems thinking, and social justice, for me, I treat that mostly as a mental model that can really hopefully shift people's mental model. And I think I start with that because as I've said, they may have good intentions, but we just disagree. And so here is a new mental model that might uh, change your belief or change your attitude. And so sometimes that will work, <laughs> but sometimes it won't. Where and when do you see the role of shaming and negative critiquing, if at all, in some of this? Because I think what we're seeing, similar to parallels to the discussion of movement of black lives, is a push for a broader, more inclusive agenda and a positive one. And yet at the same time, part of achieving that is highlighting the wrongs, highlighting those who aren't following in accordance. And the purpose of shame is a really useful social tool for changing those norms, but it's a tricky balance, particularly, I think, in a space where people are well-intentioned, it can be harsh to turn around and, you know, try to really affront them for the negative consequences. So 
yeah, what is that balance or, or do you, how do you see that? Yeah, it's an interesting question and I'm learning as I go along, right? Like, especially on social media, I'm part of this huge um, Facebook group of humanitarian aid workers and I do a lot of discourses on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And I've certainly had my moments where I just was so... I don't know, enraged or annoyed by a comment that I may have said something like, oh, like I may have adopted a negative tone and called them out. But over the years, what I've found is that for me, I'm most comfortable with, again, kind of like someone who steps back and looks at the picture more broadly. I don't necessarily sort of like shame people Sometimes when I feel like it's appropriate, I call out organizations, especially, for example, if they put up a, an event and they don't have any BIPOC speakers and the event and, is and about development or about Africa or Asia and they don't have Africans or Asians in their panel. So I, I think like that's a, a fair thing to kind of like point out and say, look, like, what are you doing? So firstly, so my response would be, depends on the context. I'm less inclined to kind of like shame people, individuals, but I can call out organizations for this. But at the same time, I appreciate that all of us has a role to play in the revolution. So there will always be people who will be more kind of like militant, right? And who will sort of like be more comfortable with calling out people on social media, especially. There are then those who never do that at all and who are more comfortable working behind the scenes, working offline even, and trying to create a better system for all of us. And so I find myself in the middle being like, I appreciate both of your efforts and I think both are necessary. And I think, yes, shaming can be a tool that could work in some context. In some context, it, it won't work. And so I'm just that guy in the middle trying to appreciate both perspectives. So that, that's my answer to your question. I'm curious hearing this then, and perhaps you, you feel you've already addressed this question, but when it comes to change, one thing that I have been touching upon is it inside or outside the system? And how do you see that fall from your experience? I think in most questions when, where there's a binary, especially in terms of systems change or in the humanitarian sector, my answer will always be both. Yeah, of course, we need insiders and outsiders. We need revolutionaries and reformers because they serve um, different functions, right? And And this is... There is empirical evidence for this. I encourage everyone to read the book, How Change Happens by Duncan Green, because he provides really extensive case studies on how social change happens, how, for example, a law gets passed or norm change happens within a particular community or country. And you can see that both are necessary. You need, you need artists, you need activists, you need bureaucrats, you need leaders, you need business professionals, you need technocrats, you need technology people, all of them working together for a common goal. And it's going to be a messy relationship and no one will be perfect. And there will probably be faults from one group and others. But yeah, I think 
everyone has their place in the revolution, as I say again. Okay, and so this, it's a really beautifully kind of inclusive, pluralistic approach. And I guess to an individual looking at issues in the humanitarian aid space, being concerned, willing to contribute to the revolution, to them, if I understand correctly, your advice is to explore who they are and where their skills may be and how along this axis they fall, be it quieter offline inside the system or louder militant outside. Is that a fair interpretation? Exactly, exactly. For individuals who want to get into humanitarian aid sector or development sector, and for individuals who are already in it and are wanting to reform it, that would be exactly my advice. Do what you're inclined to do, find your voice and find what you're comfortable in. But the important thing is to have moral clarity. And that's probably up to you what you believe in. My own sort of like moral position is that we should shift the power to the global south. We should prioritize people and communities' perspectives and voices and values. Those are some of my kind of like values and positions. And I will engage people so that they can be on board with a similar vision. And I think that's, for my part, is my moral clarity. I'm part of this movement and I am so happy that there are so many other people who share this vision and who are part of this movement. And within this movement, there are a, a variety of roles. I wish more people would join us, regardless of your role. What, what I hear recurring kind of again and again through this and what you're sharing is is this notion of of nuance where it seems to be a, a, a richer sense of nuance. I'd, I'd wonder if you want to expand on that. Yes, I think I often talk about nuance because I believe I see our world as complex. We live in a complex world. And again, this is coming from a systems thinking perspective where there are many different parts of our world and sometimes our actions lead to other things that we don't intend to. And so living in a complex world where nothing is ever black and white means that there must be nuance in how we talk about things. A really concrete example of this is how I personally feel about philanthropies. So if you ask me maybe two years ago, if you ask me, Arby, what do you think about philanthropies, billionaires giving away their money? And this is very live at the moment with Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, giving away billions of her money to, to different organizations. And if you ask me a year ago, Arby, what do you think about philanthropies? I would say, well, I think on the whole, they probably do more harm than good. And they're a new liberal kind of like vehicle that perpetuates negative consequences via capitalistic systems, etc. But recently, I've worked with Philanthropy Foundation that provides funding to really grassroots LGBT activists in the global south who are fighting for LGBT rights and are providing services to the LGBT I communities and 
I realized that actually these leaders, these activists, these groups from the global south, of course, they welcome this funding because they're doing something so contentious that not a lot of funders would fund. And most of their resources are coming from these brave philanthropic organizations who have a different institutional context than, say, a government donor or other donors. And so I think that there is a positive thing for philanthropic foundations. And this is what I mean when I say nuance. I'm not discounting the fact that a lot of philanthropies operate within a system where their money, their funds that they then provide to Global South organizations come from systems that may exploit or may be extractive. But also, I recognize that they do something really positive and really good. And I talk to these activists and leaders, huh, and they recognize it themselves. They are very well aware of the nuance and the complexity, and they don't simplify it. When I ask them, so what are your thoughts about the histories and the origins of the funding that you receive? And they give amazingly nuanced answers. They recognize the complexity of it. And so I've now taken the same view, and now I have a more nuanced understanding of philanthropy. And so this is why, for me, nuance is key. And I think in social media, it's so easy to tweet um, something that will go viral because it's very emotive or catchy or very meme-worthy or very shareable because it sounds powerful, but then it lacks nuance. And so I think that diminishes discourse to some extent. I mean, Some of these really emotive and really powerful statements have a function where it shifts the needle to more progressive discourse, which is great on the one hand, but I think it may have some unintended consequence of oversimplification. And I think that that may eventually over time, it might lead to more bad than good. That nuance is just such a important thing to carry and particularly of speaking with activists who are receiving the funds who are the most aware of the complexities and the problematic nature of how it was sourced it just reminds me of the ways in which a lot of us particularly those from the global north will like to critique and get engaged on the slightly more militant side of things without the nuance of understanding of even those who are on the receiving end of these things. So sure, we'll critique the likes of Jeff Bezos and the ways he's amassed his wealth and and kept it. But the way in which we'll critique the donations and philanthropies does ignore some of the voices of people who are on the receiving end of this. Yeah, and it's because people in the global north have a very different political institutional context than say people in the global south and so the po- the domestic politics for example in places like the US or the UK is different from say the development context in India or the Philippines but then you'd have to ad- adapt a different frame when you're talking about development work or human rights work even in the global south And this is something that I've learned throughout the years. One of the best articles I've ever read is this Guardian article by Deborah Doan. And it's talking about how, like me, before she thought, oh, development in the global south, it must be decolonized and we have to shake off our neoliberal perspectives. 
But then actually, when she spent a long time in India, she realized that, for example, the, the appearance of Starbucks in a, a particular location, people would see that sign of like neoliberal capitalistic society, blah, blah, blah. But actually, people like Starbucks there. And actually, that's the same um, for w- where I was from. So I'm from this place called Bacolod in the Philippines. And it's a, a medium-sized kind of like city in one of the islands of the Philippines. And when Starbucks first appeared there, people love it. And who's to say that's bad? Like, people love it. That's not to say that Starbucks is purely positive. Of course, you can look at, okay, what are the effects of this in, say, sort of like local businesses, in employment? What are the employment practices? But that is to say, let's have a more nuanced discussion about these things rather than just tweeting, Starbucks is a tool of the neoliberal capitalist system. And that's easy to tweet, but is that correct is that true is that what people there think and i take it further and say that what someone who tweets that isn't incorporating is the respect and the agency and the dignity of the individual in that community to the right for them to be able to choose and to express their opinions around the issue and of course the discussion should be had to highlight perspective people might not miss and and maybe they'll change their opinions but ultimately the people in the community that know best about if a starbucks is good for their community is probably the community themselves and uh, as we covered a lot of your thinking i know aid reimagined is an initiative you've created and i wonder if you'd like to share a little bit on on what that is where it is today and how people can follow yeah so i started Adrian Imagined really as a space for me to critically reflect on my own experiences and what I see within the humanitarian development sector. And I'm really happy that the message has resonated with a lot of people. I'm now working with a number of organizations looking at different things like decolonizing aid or localization. I'm always happy to engage with other people. It is really just an initiative to, to advocate for what I think is an effective and just aid system. And so what I would love to end with is to get your thoughts on, in a space where we are talking about revolution, we are talking about change, and similarly a lot of pushing against existing systems and the ways and organizations that run the system as it is, what do you see as the potential of aid and what makes you optimistic? I think that we are altruistic by nature as human beings. And so whether or not there is aid as we know it, or whether it's in another form, so for example, Jonathan Glani's idea of a global public investment. For me, it's almost kind of irrelevant to ask what is the potential of aid because it will always exist. Altruism in whatever way will always exist. So then the more interesting question is, then how do we channel it in a way that is effective and just. And so what is my cause for optimism is because I can see change. I've said earlier that there is now a traceable shift, especially within the humanitarian sector, around localization of locally led people being at the center um, of what we do. The same shift is evident in the development side. So you've got locally led development in the development sector as well. And so I think I am optimistic because at a personal kind of like micro level, every day I get a message from from someone who wants to work in the sector or who works in the sector saying, I really uh, agree with with this um, philosophy or this idea. How can I help? 
what can I do to, to make things better? And I think that's a positive sign. And I think, as you've mentioned earlier, Black Lives Matter and just the general kind of spotlight on, on equity uh, and inclusion and prioritizing the voices and perspectives of people who we may have not prioritized before from marginalized groups. And everyone has a role in the revolution. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much, Arby. This has been fantastic. And I've really appreciated the, the depth with which you've thought about these issues. And I've put you on the spot many times with what I thought have been tough questions, and yet you've, you've very easily been able to answer them. So, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. No, thank you very much. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening throughout the season. This podcast really relies on your support to grow and to reach more people. So if you enjoyed this episode, please, please take the time uh, to share it with a friend or colleague and also share your thoughts back to us, which are always great to hear. This podcast is about opening up conversations on this topic. And despite the Zoom worlds we live in today, these are best done in person. So to kick this off, we're having a panel event which will be held in Nairobi in mid-September. And more details will be shared, but looking forward to meeting some of you there. 